every year. Um, and so they're doing really good work in some of the roughest places in the city there in Santiago. So keep them in your prayers, keep us in your prayers. It, we've been able to go to some really dark places throughout the years and we wanna continue to do that because that's where these missionaries go. They're not there to play games. They're there to really reach those who need the gospel. Um, they go to dangerous places and, and we go with them, believe in the Lord, evangelizing, telling people about the church because it's one, you know, when you reach someone, then you got to teach them, you know? And so uh, evangelism is great, but it's not all the work that needs to be done. There needs to be discipleship that follows, right? So when you reach someone, always take them to a local congregation. Uh, God's mission in the world is not just solely evangelistic as it is also discipleship. Um, a lot of people are good at evangelism, but very poor at discipling and teaching. And so that's why we really, really push doctrine and theology here. We want to equip people with a, 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 a worshipful, deep knowledge of God so that they can live out their lives biblically and then reproduce what God is doing in their hearts as well. We believe without the word of God, without prayer, without worship, without fellowship within the gathering of the saints, you will not be and cannot be an effective believer. First John 4 makes it very clear that love of your brother is inseparable, and sister, is inseparable from a love for God. If you say you have a love for God, you have to love your brother and sister. And, so, and that entails being in fellowship and in congregating together. And so pray for them. That's what we push in Santiago. That's what we push here because we do believe that church planting is God's mission in the world. So with that being said, saints, we are in the Gospel of Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. That is our text for today. Luke 12, 13 to 21. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge and arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, so you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Lord, would you allow us the privilege of hearing what the Spirit has to say to us today? Would you open up eyes that are blind to you today, Lord? Would you open up hearts like you did Lydia's and come in, Lord, and save and reveal your beauty and worth. Apart from you, we can do nothing. We can't even come to you apart from you. Would you draw those who are elect, those who have been chosen to yourself? 
We pray, Lord, for those that are lost, for those that need built up here today, those in pain, those suffering, those confused, those going through things in their lives, Lord God, who they don't have answers for. I pray, God, that you would reveal yourself again. Be with us today, Lord. We need you. You are divine. We are the branches. And Father, you are the vine dresser. Do the work today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Saint, what will you have when your soul is required of you? What will you have? This question brings issues that deal with the subject that cannot be seen. Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't remember the last time I put my soul on the scale. My soul can't be put on the scale. Can't be put in my pockets. But God can see it. And you know what? He knows every detail of your soul. Scary thing. Charles Spurgeon said, soul worship is the soul of worship. And if you take away the soul from worship, you have killed worship. See, God is far more concerned with the person's interior than he is about the exterior. And it's crazy because we work so hard to look good. We work so hard for people to look at us a certain way. And yet God is least concerned with how you look. The exterior can be deceiving. It can portray a narrative that isn't true. But before God, nothing is hidden. The soul lays bare before God. Jesus did say that we can know a man by their fruit, and so the soul, the inner core of a person, can produce fruit that can be seen and tested, right? But still, we should be careful since the issues of life are very complex and layered with so many experiences that may have shaped the person into what they are doing. Sometimes the most obnoxious person that hurts you all the time, it might be just because they're hurting. And maybe you need to see that. Instead of looking at a brother or sister and saying, oh, they're just tripping, they're getting on my nerves, amen? <laughs> Maybe that person's hurting you because they're hurting themselves. All this is true, but before God, the complexities of life and the layers of a person before God are all exposed and understood. In today's text, Jesus addresses this issue where a man in the crowd asks him to divide his brother's inheritance. And you know what? Jesus will illustrate what is at the core of a covetous person and what is most important. What is most important differs from what is required when bills are due. When bills are due, you got to pay them. Amen. Yeah. Or ouch. Yeah. Right? Thank the Lord, uh, my car payment this month is going to be paid. No more car payments. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Yes, that's revival, y'all. I'm telling you. <laughs> this month, I feel like lighter. I feel good. I'm like, man, that's a couple extra hundred that Lynette's going to want. But, you know, <laughs> that's how it works. But before God, when the bill is due for your soul, how can you make payment for that? What is required of you? 
When your soul was required before God, what must you show for the right to inherit eternal life with Christ? I think the text answers this question. So for those of y'all who are taking notes, point number one, we see the covetousness of man at work, and that's in verses 13 to 15, the covetousness of man at work. Second point, the corruption of man revealed, verses 16 to 20, the corruption of man revealed, 16 to 20, and then lastly, third point, the core problem and the solution in verse 21. The core problem and the solution in verse 21. So point number one, the covetousness of man at work in verses 13 to 15. We do see, however, like in the Greek, believe it or not, a conjunction that the ESV does not include in the beginning of the sentence. And it is the word and. And someone in the crowd said to him. And so it's important to know that conjunctions in the text point us back to the text previous. And so remember the setting. According to Luke 12, 1, there were thousands there before Jesus, so much that they were trampling on one another, the text says. But Jesus began to speak to his disciples first, and he was doing this amongst the crowds that were there, the thousands that were there. Jesus addressed hypocrisy and the fear of man. He spoke about God's care and how personal he is with his people. He also spoke about acknowledging him, even if it meant their lives. He also encouraged them by ensuring that the Holy Spirit will give them what to say when persecuted. And we have Christian history to back that up. Saints singing at the burning of the stake. One of my heroes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany, walked up to get executed. He counted it a privilege. That's otherworldly. What does that come from? It comes from the Spirit of God. Jesus said that would happen. In today's passage, Luke tells us it was someone in the crowd, which leaves the person anonymous. We don't know who this is, but they were among the thousands that got the attention of Jesus. You can just imagine thousands of people there, and then one person caught his ear. The person from the crowd called Jesus teacher. The Greek is didaskalos, meaning teacher, master, which according to John 139 also means rabbi. That's what he's essentially saying. So from what this person is asking, we can gather that they thought of Jesus more in having authority to tell their brother that they should divide their inheritance with them. But you know what? It wasn't the role of rabbis to do that. The role of rabbis was to deal with religious issues. Religious leaders, maybe, their corruption at that time may be revealed here in our text. Because this person thought that that's what rabbis do. So maybe the rabbis were overstepping their religious jurisdiction and going into legal matters. That kind of matches up with the Pharisees, scribes, and lawyers, right? It shows you really the corruption or the corrupt thought people had about rabbis. But it wasn't the role of rabbis to deal with such matters. The religious leader's corruption at that time is revealed here, I believe. And in our text, someone called Jesus from the crowd, and he wanted him to tell their brother to divide their father's estate with them. So, you know, this question about inheritance, dividing it, is very foreign to me because in my culture, my background, parents didn't leave anything for us. We were broke. 
you know? We had nothing. You know, my son, when, you know, not to put him out there, it's already too late, but like, when he needs help, he got mom and dad that can help him, right? We pay our bills, we're saving our money, we're doing good for ourselves. I told my son, that's not the case when I grew up. My mom was on welfare. My dad was a heroin addict. I had nobody. I graduated in 1993, got my first job, and then in 94, I got a good paying job, but wasn't a good steward of my money. And then I'll be broke, and then I had to figure out what to eat and what to do. I couldn't go to mom and dad, they had nothing. So this idea of an inheritance was very foreign in my background, in my culture. But in this culture, it was actually strong. To leave something behind was very strong, very noted. It was something that was expected. An inheritance was a transfer of the property and rights from one party, usually the father, to his children. The recipient is expected to possess the property permanently until they pass it on to their children. And it could be acquired simply by the parent passing it on to their children. So to divide an inheritance meant to divide the rights to the things owned and passed on to the family. Now this person is telling Jesus to tell their brother to divide their inheritance. So they wanted the portion given to their brother, which means they wanted more than the amount given to them. This is interesting. And so since this transfer is within the family, it was a legal matter, not a religious one. It's revealing here since Jesus was not speaking about legal matters. Right? The text previously when Jesus is teaching, it has nothing to do with anything legal. It was everything about spiritual and heart issues. Why does this seem like a random request here? The person seems more concerned about getting more of what was left to them than hearing God's word. This person's carnal. This person's temple, at least in their thinking. I, I even remember Luke 8, 14. It might, he might even embody this idea in Luke 8, 14, where it says, as for what fell among thorns, there are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. You see, when you think like this, it's a troubling condition. Jesus, God in the flesh, is, he's teaching words of life, and you're concerned about money. This person may have been more preoccupied with inheriting possessions than possessing what Jesus is saying here, definitely. So Jesus doesn't fall trapped by the mistake of forgetting his mission, though. His mission wasn't to judge, but to save. So he spoke all he did before our text because it aligned with his mission to save. In verse 14, he said to him, man who made me judge and arbitrator over you. So he's addressing the one from the crowds who told him to tell their brother to divide their inheritance. And then he responds as he often does with the question. How would you like to be questioned by the Lord Jesus Christ who's God in the flesh? <laughs> nah, I'm good. Like... <laughs> What's the answer, I would have said, because I know you got an answer you're looking for. Like, he asked this, man who made me judge and arbitrator over you. So there are two things Jesus said he's not. First, he's not their judge. 
He's saying here that his mission was not to render a decision in legal matters. The second thing he says, he's not arbitrator over them. One exegetical dictionary defined the term as one who apportions an inheritance. It's not his job to settle legal affairs or family affairs. Jesus was on mission. Which brings about verse 15 of our text. And he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. But one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. And notice the plural in our text. He said to them, not just to the man who asked. And it might be because this is a systemic problem. This is a message for all of them. And I would even argue for all of us here today, especially in America. I'm going to a third world country where people are broke. My brother, who's a pastor out there, I hit him up the other day. I said, brother, how's it going? We got some exciting things to give you, bro. We want to bless you. And while he's talking to me on the WhatsApp, that's kind of what missionaries use, he said, bro, thank you so much. You know, I'm just here, you know, um, I'm Ubering just to make up some money that I don't have out here. I'm like, you should be fully supported. You're a missionary. But thankfully, Kelvin is not concerned about money. He's doing everything he does to survive for the sake of the people who need to hear the gospel. That's commendable. And that's not found here in America. We won't send somebody out until they're fully supported. We planted a church here, and I had a full-time job. They had to push me into full-time ministry. I didn't want to do it because I was too scared. You know, I was just like, who's going to pay my bills, y'all? What happens if the church, you know, comes down in attendance? What's going to happen? And they told me what I should I told other people who I disciple, trust the Lord. <laughs> I was like, ouch. Dave Gunjum is, you already know. I ain't going to say no more. But he begins by telling them here to take care. One translation begins by telling them to see to it that you be on guard against every kind of greed. So taking care here means to see and watch, as some other translations say. Jesus tells them to see, watch, and guard against all covetousness. Not some, all of it. And so to guard means to take careful measures. It means to protect yourself from this. Why does Jesus speak about being watchful and guarded against covetousness? Well, covetousness has to do with desiring to have more than one has. Anybody there? It means to be discontent to the point of wanting more than what one has that is enough. It is to be greedy. It is to be insatiable meaning incapable of being satisfied. Example, the man in our text who wanted his brother's inheritance and not be satisfied with what he got. Jesus tells them to watch and be on guard from discontent and dissatisfaction with what they have for, Jesus says in our text, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession, which is what Jesus tells them to watch and guard against. So he tells them that life is not measured by how much is owned. The Greek speaks more in terms of not existing, not belonging to these things. 
This is the problem in our culture, man. We feel like our identity is wrapped in our stuff. If I got a nice house, that means that I'm successful. If I got a good job, that means I'm communicating success. I feel important. I have position. I have more than enough. The falling trap to defining our existence with those things we possess is precisely what is wrong with us. Now, Jesus, to illustrate this point, he uses a parable in a second point, the corruption of man revealed in verses 16 through 20. We see here the parable. Now, parables in the synoptic gospels are short stories used every day for everyday life. Objects, he, you know, you can see in parables the use of objects, events. Farms, there's agricultural examples given in the parables in the Gospels. This particular parable has a rich man who had land that produced plenty. His wealth came from the land or the farm he owned that was fertile and producing crops. And then in verse 17, follow with me, he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? So the rich man had an idea about a good problem he had. That's a good thing, right? To have good land that produces crop. Again, I'm from the city. I have no idea what this means. I eat it, but I don't grow it. Don't do that in the city, right? But this rich man, who's a farmer, it looks like, had a good problem in our text. Now, what should he do with the abundance of what he possessed? We'll revisit this because this question later will begin the process of revealing what's the problem here. Now, the issue for the rich man is that he didn't have storage for the extra. Then in verse 18 of our text, he said, I will do this with this good problem he has. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now, after thinking of this problem, his move is actually telling of his focus. To fix this problem he, he had, he would tear down his barns and build larger ones. Then he thought he would have enough room to store all his wheat, all his goods. But what should he have done with the abundance of what he, he possessed? What should he have done with the extra? The question here is, what does a covetousness a, 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 a man who's full of covetousness do in a situation like this. If, if someone's full of coveting, what would that person do with extra? If covetousness means to be discontent to the point of wanting more than what you know, somebody has, and if covetousness means greed, suppose covetousness means to be insatiable, to be incapable of being satisfied, what would this person do? Verse 19 tells us, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Notice that the rich man speaks to his soul. He speaks to himself. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about this in Spiritual Depression in the book. Well, the problem the Christian has is he doesn't speak to himself enough. Why are you so downcast on my soul? Good question. Hoping God. Is, is it that bad that you can't hope in God in your situation? 
We need to talk to ourselves a little bit more. I know that sounds crazy, but it's in the Psalms. The rich man, though, is speaking to his soul about a whole different matter. He speaks to his inner self, meaning who he is at the core. So at the heart of his being, he says, so you have ample goods laid up for many years. Ample meaning enough or more than enough. You have more than enough, so you're chilling. You're doing well. You shouldn't worry. We got extra. We're living in abundance. So at the core of his being, the rich man said to himself, you have enough stored away for years to come, he says. So what would a person full of covetousness not do? They would not consider giving what they have to others. I was wondering about that. Yo, you got extra? And in that culture, hunger was running rampant? You would think that a godly person who has extra would want to give the extra to those in need. That's not in the text. He's building bigger barns for himself. So a life of discontentment to the point of wanting more and a life of greed and an inability to be satisfied do not have on the list to help others in need. Watch yourself, Christian. Do you live a life of building up your life? Storing up for your life? Is your kingdom your home and that's it? Apart from the kingdom of God? There's a lot of people doing that. They make ministry their kingdom. They make family their kingdom. They make their careers their kingdom. God is not asking you to build your kingdom. He's asking you to build his. The kingdom has one king and you know what? That's not you. Newsflash, you're a servant in this kingdom. The young adults uh, reading through Matthew 25 is talking about how Jesus would say to some, yo, you didn't visit me when I was in prison. You didn't feed me when I was hungry. He's talking about how you treat your brother and sister in Christ. If you see a brother and sister in Christ in the body of Christ and you're kind of turning an eye and not so concerned with that, Watch yourself. You might be victim to just a, a kingdom of self here. Listen, at the core of his being, the rich man said to himself, you have enough. The rich man said, so his problem is he said, you have. Right. Let's stop there. What does a soul have? You know what? That's the problem here. This is a problem because if a person's core identity is in what they possess, it brings about a life of no urgency for the eternal. This is the core problem. This is what it means to be corrupt at the core. St. Jerome said he is rich enough who is poor with Christ. He is rich enough who is poor with Christ. I might look poor. I might look like I don't have enough, but I have Christ. I have Jesus. I have enough. That sounds cliche, Pastor Lowe. So, I mean, come on now. It's the truth. 
Do I live that way sometimes? Absolutely not, y'all. I struggle with that. I, when I don't have what I want, or don't feel like I have enough, or don't measure up to other lifestyles that I see in ministry, I got to step back from it all and say, Christ is enough. Especially when you lose things. When things are taken from you and you feel like you don't have anything anymore, you have Christ. What Jerome said is not in the core of this rich man. It's not in his soul. He believed that to be rich enough is to have more than enough at the expense of being content and charitable. He wasn't charitable. At the core, we are selfish and content with the temporary. And that sadly results in what the rich man concluded from his prosperity. He said, and I will say to my soul, so you have ample goods laid up for many years. He said, relax, drink, eat, be merry. Four things he told his soul to do. He said, first, relax. And relaxing here just doesn't mean take it easy. It means relieve yourself from working. Stop working, soul. Now you can stop farming. Second, he said, eat. To eat here means to consume. Not only that, but to feast. It has the picture of someone at a banquet. Third, he said, drink. Fourth, and I believe this is telling, be merry. And there lies the core problem. What was the reason and cause for the rich man to feel he could live a life of gladness and delight? What would be the cause for him to rejoice and celebrate? Which, that's what Mary means. Well, his attainment of having more than enough of temporal things. That is what was in charge of his joy. Temporal things. Things that you can't take with you are in charge of whether you're going to have a joyful day or not. I don't know about y'all, but I don't want to live that life. I don't want my joy to be dependent on temporal things, including my family, including you, including this church, including my finances, including my health. And that's a hard one. I get up and my back hurts. I'm already in a bad mood. Where's my joy? Where's my peace? And you know what? I've seen brothers and sisters who can't even walk and live like they can walk. The rich man thinks he is rich enough because he has enough for this life. And you know what? This is the problem with man apart from Christ at the core. It plagues us in our culture who live in abundant lifestyle, consumer-driven culture here. Be merry, be glad, be delighted, enjoy yourself. Rejoice and celebrate because you know what? You have enough in this life to justify your joy. So the cause of their joy is their temporary status in this life. You know what James Montgomery Boyce said? It's hard to say that middle name. I'm just going to call him James Boyce. He said this. 
The valleys are places of rich pasture and much water. He says, but they're also places of danger. Thought about that. I love the mountaintop experience, but you know what? When you're in the valley sometimes, that's the most fruitful place to be. But it's also the most dangerous place to be. Because abundance can come from that. And abundance can kill you. Jesus said, take care, be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If you don't take care and are guarded against covetousness, you will fall trapped in a life that consists of an abundance of possessions. Sometimes God's judgment is to give you or leave you with abundance. Abundance in this life can deceive you. You think you're in revival because life is just working out for you. You know what? Life could work out for you without Jesus. Hello? You can have a house. You can have a car. You can have a career. You can be a pastor without Jesus of a big church. Ministry, anything, anything good. And an abundance of it can be the very thing that will choke the life out of you. Because if you look for meaning in those things that you're not going to take with you into eternity, you're a qualified person to look before God and he's going to say, who are you? This is what Jesus said to the person who asked about his brother's inheritance and to everyone there. And this is written for us today, I believe. I have said before that our problem is treating the temporal as eternal and the eternal as temporal. We do that. The very things that are temporal, we treat as eternal, and the eternal things we treat as temporal. They don't matter, like prayer, like reading the scriptures. The cause of my joy cannot rely on the temporal. If it does, I'm in trouble. The brother asking for his brother's inheritance after Jesus speaking of eternal concerns here is in trouble. Someone who's preoccupied with attaining in this life only is in trouble. They are foolish, according to God in verse 20. Verse 20 says in our text, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now, Jesus turns to what God thinks about the idea of one's life consisting only in the abundance of their possessions. What does God think of a soul that says to itself, you have enough? God says that that soul, that person, is a fool. What does it mean to be a fool? A fool is someone who lacks prudence, good judgment, full of ignorance, unwise, inconsiderate. Actually, one translation says simple unenlightened and vain. Another use in the gospel of Luke of fool is found previous to our chapter here in Luke 11, where Jesus called the Pharisees fools because they were astonished that he had not washed his hands before a ceremony, uh, being ceremonial in his washing of his hands before they, they would eat. But you know what, just like the rich man in the parable and the brother who wanted to divide his brother's inheritance after Jesus teaching about eternal things, the crowds were also fools. 
if they believed in attaining for this life only. They were fools because they concerned themselves with things that did not matter. They concerned themselves with exterior material things and not interior spiritual things. What would you say is the most important to your soul here today? Where do you find meaning? Is it in family relationships? Health and well-being? Purpose and meaning? Financial security? Personal growth and development? Happiness and fulfillment? Community and social connections? Ethical and moral values? Safety and security? Achievement and success? That's big in our culture. You're a successful pastor if you have more than 100 people in your church. These things don't matter. All of these things, according to our text, is not required. So what is required? What is demanded of you when you face God? It's not what we attain in this life. It's, it's crazy to me. It's sick of us to work so hard for the things we have here today when they have nothing to do with eternity. <laughs> nothing. God's not going to look at your car. He's not going to look at the kind of shoes you bought or the Timberlands you're going to buy me this coming winter. <laughs> you know, Pastor Appreciation Month. You know, I like Timberlands. Just a heads up. <laughs> You're a little pricey, but I like Tim's, man. I grew up in Tim's. I, I love Tim's. He's not going to look at all that. You laid bare before God with nothing. Nothing. In the parable, God asked this question, the things you have prepared, whose will they be? The things that the rich man have prepared, meaning those things that will be stored up for his life, Whose will they be when his soul is required? All the stuff they stored up and attained means absolutely nothing when standing before God. To God, what matters most is not what you have. Saint, it's who you have. Who are you? Who are you? What, what's your soul look like? core problem with man is that they think that to be rich in this life is how happiness, purpose, and meaning are attained. But you know what? They are wrong. True happiness comes from being rich toward God. Amen. Our last point in closing, the core problem and the solution of man, in verse 21, God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What are you storing up? What are you gathering for yourself? What are you saving up for? More specifically, what do you treasure? That is the question. What do you treasure? But to be more specific, who do you treasure? Who do you treasure? Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
Yes, we will have mansions in heaven. Yes, we'll walk on streets of gold. But who do I have in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire but you. My flesh will fail here, but the Lord is my portion forever. Who do you treasure? Who do you go after? Who are you thirsting for? Does your soul thirst for the living God? The core problem with man is that they do not see that having God is being rich. Whether or not they are rich and poor in this life. I think Paul had this idea when he said, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, but I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What is the secret? How can Paul continue to be faithful to God, to see God as his treasure in abundance and even being brought low? Being hungry and being full. Being broke and having a good bank account. Being at a place of loss and gain. How can Paul continue to be content through it all? I want to know. Yes. <laughs> I need to know. Amen. I live in a world swaying me to be swayed, to go up and down in my emotions. I need to be content. Yeah. Verse 13 of Philippians 4 gives you the answer. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's not my strength. It's not me. Left to myself, I'll be depressed. I'll be isolated. I will not be here in fellowship. I'll be at home in my misery. But I'm here because he strengthens me. I have no choice. I have to treasure Christ. I need to treasure Christ. Apart from him, I'm broke. Have nothing. We fight so much for the temple. We we complain so much about the temple. We need to rejoice in the eternal. Who do we have in heaven but Christ? J.C. Rao said this. This is the character of him who gives nothing to God's glory. Talking about the rich man. Neither money, affection, thought, time, nor interest. There are thousands of this character. They are rich toward everything but God. They have plenty to give the world, but nothing to give to God. Asking them to help a worldly scheme and they can find money and time and attention, but ask them to do something for God and they have no money, no time. Those are truly rich who have property which will be recognized at the day of judgment. He says, many owners of millions of pounds are paupers before God. They are not rich either in grace or faith or good works. What will you have when your soul is required of you? The solution to this core problem that man has before God's saint is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus coming to save the world. 
to give us salvation who didn't deserve it. We fell. Adam and he fell in the beginning and deserved every punishment given to them and deserved even more. But then in Genesis 3.15, we see that the seed would be given. We see that God would preserve his people through it. His rebellious people, we were reading in 1 Kings how rebellious the covenant people of God were, and yet God considered covenant to preserve his people because the heir would come later for your salvation to save you who were undeserving. God looked at you and saw your problem. You don't deserve him. I don't deserve him. I'm dead in my sin. I love my sin. He had to rescue, he had to pull me out of my sin. He gave me a new being, a new person. He saved me, he washed me. And every sin I committed now is accounted for in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I stand holy and righteous because of Christ. I'm rich because I have righteousness. I'm rich because I have Christ. And at the day of judgment, when I have nothing, Lynette's not going to be there. My kids won't be there. My house won't be there. My car won't be there. I'll be there. My soul will be there. The soul purchased by the blood of Christ. I'll remember verses like Psalm 1610 for you. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Psalm 23.3, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Psalm 24.3-5, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. How is that possible? The righteousness of Christ applied to me. That's right. Psalm 25, 20. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. Oh, Lord, you have brought up my soul from the grave. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. The gospel gives us that hope, saint. This rich man was in trouble, but was required of him he did not have, though he felt like he had everything. And I say to you who have Christ, you have everything. Don't let the world tell you otherwise. Don't let your home situation tell you. Don't let your bank account tell you otherwise. You have Christ. You have enough. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You are enough. You are enough. You are enough. We need nothing in this world. Apart from you, we can do nothing. We can't even live, breathe, walk, talk, know. You're all we need. Lord, would that be the banner we fly this week? That you're all we need. Help us, Lord. Ministry. Jobs, houses, financial status. Do away with it, Lord, and help us to focus on you so that we can treat the temporal things properly. Help us not to make bigger barns and to say to our soul, rest. 
eat, be merry, but to say to our soul, you need Christ. I need to thirst after the living God. And so, Lord, help us. Speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name.